Hi, and welcome to Leechfest, a medical history podcast where we embrace the creepy crawlies of the crunchy world. Because today, we're talking about insects in medicine, bugs, and drugs? Spiders. In my vagine, it's more likely than you think. Spiders are not technically insects. We know this. I, we know, but they're creepy crawlies. Mm-hmm. And like, they're, they're small. They are, they have shells. They're basically bugs. We're saying bugs for simplicity, but really we're talking about lots of different things. Many arthropods. Arthropods and miscellaneous. If you lift up a rock in the forest and it's underneath there, that's what we're talking about. Yes. But before we reach our hand into the dirt to pull out some fun worms, how have you been, my dear co-worm? <laughs> Didn't see the one coming. No, I snuck up on you. Um, a worm? <laughs> Um, I, oh, that's a good one. That's an old one. <laughs> I miss a worm. A worm. <laughs> I've been oh, good. Worm? <laughs> I feel like that's going to come up a lot in this episode. Um, I'm good. I graduated, so that's new. Um, we're doing miniatures now. We're building miniature towns. We that's are. Right. We're building a diorama. <laughs> we're building dioramas. That's our new ADHD micro obsession. Mm-hmm. Are you enjoying it, Mia? I am enjoying it. We've just been really busy these last few weeks, which is why we haven't like also done the podcast in a while. Oh my god, um, yeah, don't even get me started. Uh, we are so no. sorry for not doing the podcast. We've I feel, been so busy. Like, listen, I feel really guilty about it because I really like doing the podcast, but I got to a point where when I was writing my thesis, I was literally going into work at like 9 and leaving at like 9 or 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. And I was just... Yeah, you, doing... would, you would get home by like midnight. Sometimes. Yeah, and you know, working on the weekends, um, like every weekend mm-hmm. for over a month. Like I was not getting any time to do anything mm-hmm. other than work. I did not home. see you like at all that much. Yeah, like I would come home and then shower, eat something, go to bed, do it again the next day. So I really had just no time to do anything else. Yeah. But now I am graduated. <laughs> I want to say I'm unemployed. I'm not fully unemployed right now because I'm still, (laughs) (laughs) because I'm doing like, um, I'm continuing like um, a project that I worked on for my thesis. Um, So I'm continuing that over the summer, but I'm basically unemployed. So if there's any cool labs out there, so uh, hire me. (laughs) Contact us immediately if you want someone to work on organoids. Yeah, I would love to to work with organoids. Yeah. Anyway, how have you been? I've been good. I haven't done much. I haven't... I've been really busy, but I haven't been more very busy than usual. Like, you've um, been you've been kind of, like, work as usual. Work as usual. Uh, I've been finishing up a lot of stuff with, like, municipal politics just before the summer. Because all politics on the municipal level just stop abruptly for, like, ten weeks during the summer. Because Swedes love taking holidays. Um, we boy, do. Boy, do I have things to say we about that. We love holidays. Swedes love talking shit about like Spaniards taking siestas, and here we are taking half a year off. Like, girl, if you need, Lord. if you need something done in July, like that's slightly vaguely bureaucratic. It will good not luck. happen. Like, good luck because you're gonna get an email back in October. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're doing something that's like not like super emergency happening. It has to happen like within 48 hours. It will be done in October. Yeah, exactly. Fuck. 
Well, so I'm doing that. I'm doing. I'm finishing up a lot of work, but I haven't done much much else. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to start doing the podcast again. Yeah, I'm also uh, hoping that maybe we get back into streaming soon because that's also something that yeah. I missed. I haven't streamed quite like my bit. own games yep. either. Like we've we've just been really busy too. Like generally, we're on that grind set. <laughs> Every episode we make this joke. <laughs> Okay, but we are on the grind set. We're on the podcast grind set. Um, all right. So, what's the episode today about? Well, the episode today is about creepy crawlies and bugs and insects. Mm-hmm. But before we go into all of that stuff, we of course want to thank our lovely patrons for supporting this podcast. Patrons get access to a longer, special video version of the podcast where you can see our lovely faces, as well as the chance for a shout out in the actual episodes themselves. And in this episode, we would like to thank. Brian Fullerton. Thank you, Brian, for supporting us. Your thank has been a long time coming. Is that something that you can say? Uh, or sure. Is, does it have a negative connotation? <laughs> um, you got, you've gotten what's coming to you, <laughs> which Brian. Is, which is a thank you on the episode. <laughs> and much appreciated. Thank much you. Appre- and we, we love you. We actually really appreciate it. <laughs> you got what was coming to you. Love and appreciation. Um, so yeah, if you like this episode, want to support us, uh, check out our Patreon. And with that, let's grab the shovel of content and find some fun in the dirt. So the use of insects in medicine dates back to ancient times and has been part of traditional healing systems in many cultures around the world. Some instances are more obvious than others though. But it makes sense that there's no origin to using insects in in medicine because bugs are just part of nature. Today we might think of bugs in medicine as a strange thing, but it's no different than using tree bark or animal fat. I'm gonna try to keep this section pretty wide-ranging because obviously there are so so many bugs. There's so many cultures. So many cultures. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and you are going to go into some like details about like very modern use of mm-hmm. bugs later on. So I'm just going to give a very wide-ranging history of it. And it's still like a pretty long part, so I do apologize. But let's start with the obvious use of insects. In ancient Egypt, starting around 2600 BCE, honey was used as a topical treatment for wounds and infections, and beeswax was used to make ointments and salves for various skin ailments. Honey seems to be the earliest record we have of insect use for medicine, And it's most likely because the use of honey was realized very early on in human history as a source of food, and so the leap to medicine wasn't great. The use of honey is detailed in the also famous Ebers Papyrus, named after some rando German dude who we have mentioned before and who is not relevant for this episode. Honey was also used to treat wounds because it has antibacterial properties due to a myriad of factors that scientists are still figuring out, including honey changing the pH balance of the wound, which reduces protease activity and generally just being good at blocking out other sources of infection by being a sticky goo that's very easy to line around a wound and is pretty harmless compared with many other sticky goos that would be available to most older civilizations, like tar. A lot of oils have dirt insects occasionally living inside of them, or like if you use clay or like mud, like those things are not nearly as what we would call sterile as honey is. Uh, So honey just works the best. But we're not here for honey, we're here for bugs themselves. 
the crunchy ones, which we like to fry. And we're going to start <laughs> that story with traditional Chinese medicine. And there's a lot of like traditional medicines coming in this, in this segment, because they're still used today. In ancient Chinese medicine, there were approximately 300 medicinal insect species distributed across 70 genera, 63 families, 14 orders, and an estimated 1700 traditional Chinese medicine prescriptions include medicinal insects or insect-derived crude drugs. Insects such as silkworms, cicadas, and centipedes have been used for their medicinal properties since at least the 1st century BCE, and are still being used in many areas that still adhere to folk medicine. Silkworms are believed to have anti-inflammatory and fever-reducing effects, while cicadas are used to treat headaches and fever. Centipedes are considered to be a potent painkiller, and are used to relieve joint and muscle pain. Preparation of these insects vary from eating them, just slurp, or mashing them into a pulp that you can make into a sort of poultice, or using the cocoons only, which are also come in pulp or crunch form. The two flavor of a bug. Crunch or pulp. Crunch or pulp. Do you like, do you like your bugs with pulp? Uh, don't. I, I, one thing about me, I throw up so easily. <laughs> so oh. I think this is going to be a really difficult episode. This is going to be a fun one then. The Chinese Black Mountain Ant is considered a panacea, and they are ground into an extract, dried up, and then mixed with wine or with a tonic, and is allegedly used to increase your lifespan, reduce signs of aging, cure cancer, and it's basically perfect. It can do anything. And you can actually buy this online as a superfood, with websites that boast that it will fix all of these things and more, but real scientific studies into it are as with most of these superfood or herbal supplement stuff, inconclusive. Um, a lot of the things that I discovered while doing research on this, like every bug I mention, you can buy online as a superfood. Like almost any of them. So like this medicine, this medicine is still used, but not in the traditional form, which means that it'll work even as like traditional medicine is supposed to use it. Because people use it as like protein powder. Yeah, Like I mean... black mountain ant. <clears throat> You know, you're supposed to use it in like a very tra like traditional wine and like extract and dry it up. Uh, but people just take ground up ants and just put them in their. Shakes. I mean, I guess that depends on you know what what it, what is the active ingredient. I guess not everything has to be, you know, used the, the same the same exact way that it has been used for some, like that we, is true. we are still able we're like we are able to extract like active compounds from things. But yeah. I'm just I'm I'm always a bit like skept skeptical of like you know, superfoods and like supplements and... I will, there is, uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. There's one example I have later on though, that comes way later in, in, the, in my segments, uh, that is just in, in the modern day, just used wrongly. Yeah. Like for the, for the wrong thing. Um, so that, that I, we, we'll see, we'll look into that. Like, yeah. But I, I, I do agree. Like, I guess it depends on the... the, on what, on the yeah, exactly. I'm using present tenses here because all of these insects have been used in this way for thousands of years. Um, and like you can, you can find them like all over China or India today as well, uh, depending on the variety of folk medicine you're talking about. Similarly, in Ayurvedic medicine, which is an ancient Indian healing system, insects have been used for their medicinal properties for centuries. The Indian lac insect, for example, is used to treat a range of ailments, including respiratory and gastrointestinal problems. The cochineal insect, which produces a red dye, has been used to treat a variety of conditions, including liver and kidney disease. 
Termites are also widely used, and are in some ways the Indian equivalent to the Chinese black mountain ant, because it's used for basically everything too. If you got a problem, your termite will solve it. Speaking of the... That's uh, an ice, ice baby reference, because we didn't get that. The um, co coquineal insect? That sounds really familiar. So you said it produces a red dye. Is this the one that they use to, um, to dye like red candy? I don't know. It sounds I like it. I don't know the answer to that question. I saw only um, old Tibetan illustrations of it and not modern ones. The way the termites are prepared is by grinding them into a paste that you can then mix with water and use as a topical cream and then use that as a pain reliever. In some cases it's also eaten and then it's said to cure ulcers. So again, like can do do anything. And just as with Chinese traditional medicine, this is still used today, pretty much unchanged from around 1000 BCE. And we actually know a lot about these medical uses because Tibetan monks would often write down what travelers from India and China used as medicine and then also drew illustrations of the bugs that they would use, which is how we know what bugs they use because even though the, the names of the bugs are not the same as the names of the books today, the illustrations have survived and evolution hasn't kept up with history, so the bugs look the same. You can just like compare, like, is this, is this drawing of an ant that ant or that ant? And you're like, okay, well, it's probably this ant. Thank you, artists. Thank you, thank you Tibetan artists. And I've mentioned India. China, and a tiny bit about Africa. I'd have, I'd have a bigger segment on African medicine use of insects, but it's a lot more varied in ancient societies, often being town and kingdom dependent. Chinese and Indian folk medical traditions were a lot more centralized compared to Africa, so because of that it's harder to point anything out, except for the fact that termites were also widely used here as well. People beloved termites. In the Americas, Indigenous people also used insects for medicinal purposes. The Hopi people of Arizona used a type of beetle known as the blister beetle to treat rheumatism and arthritis pain. The beetle is crushed and mixed with water to create a poultice that is applied to the affected area. Similarly, the Zuni people of New Mexico used the ground-up exoskeletons of red ants as a topical pain reliever. But one of the more interesting cases was the mine use of army ants, Specifically, the soldier cast of the army ant, which have these big, like, huge mandibles that they use to fight. I think I've seen pictures of those. Yeah, they're, they're gigantic. Uh, they use them by annoying the ant <laughs> and holding it up to the edges of a wound where it would bite down, after which they'd remove the rest of the body and just leave the head on the wound, mandibles closed. The evidence of this actually being a real thing that happened is a little loosey-goosey, um, but it is possible. Like people have done it today. You can, you can do it. The problem, the issue is just like how practical it would have been at the time and like how widespread it mm -hmm. would have been used if it was used. So, so um, is this one of those possible? And is it, is it one of those cases where like you cut off the head and the mandibles like stay in the same, like, yeah, they get locked. They like, get closed. locked in yeah. that position. Mm. Yeah, so you... Because I've seen... There's the YouTube videos of people doing it. Like, they, they annoy the ant, it bites down, and then they just twist off the, the thorax and leave the head uh, mandibles in place. And you can you can close, like, a pretty good wound with that, like, as, a, as an emergency suture. 
It's like stitches, like getting stitches with ants. Yes, it's, it's actually quite interesting. Here in Europe, the Romans had multiple uses for insects as crude prototypes for medicines, such as fried cockroaches against oh earaches <laughs> and eating dried grasshoppers with wine to prevent scorpion bites. During the Middle Ages, insects were used in a variety of medical treatments in Europe. For example, beta larvae were used to treat ear infections, while honey was used to treat wounds. Classic Egyptian trick. In the 16th century, Italian physician Pietro Andrea Mattoli recommended the use <laughs> gotta of... Gotta do the Italian gotta, accent. Gotta do it. Uh, well, he, he recommended the use of the maggot of the Spanish fly beetle to treat a variety of ailments, including urinary tract infection and liver problems. In the 17th century, English physician Nicholas Culpepper suggested using the dried bodies of the green beetle to treat epilepsy. But around this time, people were moving away from using insects in medicine, because there was an idea that they were unscientific and kind of folksy compared to the then emerging field of chemistry as a source of materials and tools to use in cures. Which, fair, right? Yeah, fair. I, I was thinking about this as you were like going through this. I kind of have this um, like initial like gut reaction of being like, sure, treat like using a beetle to treat epilepsy. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. But then, I mean, I'm going to talk about like modern uses mm -hmm. for insects. And like, I feel like if I were to see that as an example of historical uses of, of bugs, I might also be a little bit like skeptical mm -hmm. but actually like it works yeah so just because like maybe just because we or you know those people didn't provide an explanation of why it worked doesn't mean that it didn't work mm. people used to be smart before also <laughs> <laughs> and people are very stupid today exactly in any case historians are unsure about how or why some insects became associated with certain illnesses to treat, but some theorize that early medical discovery associated the foul smell of wounds to the similar smell of smashed up insects, combined with a trial and error method, which seems to have worked for some cases like using honey instead of tar, with immediate differences in results. But the full picture is unfortunately quite unknown. We don't have like all the data of why some bugs are connected to certain things. Some of them are. Uh, I saw. I did see some theories that talked a bit, a bit like some bugs looked a bit like a penis, so you use them for penis things, <laughs> and like some things looks like a kidney, so you use them for kidney things. Mm -hmm. Like like mm -hmm. very sort of like association, mm -hmm. like word, color and shape association. Uh, which, sure, but, you know, it's not the most scientific method. But some bugs that were kept in use were maggots, which you're going to talk about, like, much more in depth later. But I, I do want to mention them, because after, like, the 17th century, that's those are basically the only bugs used. So I do, I feel like I kind of got to mention them. Because maggots have been used to clean wounds, but they stopped basically being used in wounds in 1928, or, like, a bit after that. Uh, after the discovery of penicillin, because penicillin then became the dominant way to treat like infected wounds. Uh, if you had sterile bandages and penicillin or antibiotics generally, that's the best method to do it. Mm. Whereas maggots, at the time at least, not as reliable. And at the time they would also sometimes use honey still, like as a sort of an addition to the uh, bandages. 
but honey, antibiotics, they do not compare. Like antibiotics is just so much more reliable, standardized and better than honey would be for antibacterial properties. Do you know what my grandparents, I, I, I just remembered this, that my grandparents still used honey for my wounds when I was a kid, mm. which is kind of weird to think about. Like, I guess honey is still used in medicine and, and my grandparents are doctors, so you can't, you can't say <laughs> shit about that. Yeah, it's not, they it's know not their like stuff. a house cure at home, like a folk secure, like they're doctors. Yeah, I mean, it was a folk secure, but I guess they also... Like, you know, they're smart people who also know medicine <laughs> and they still like use yeah. honey for me. I specifically remember yeah. getting burns and them being like, just dip your finger in a pot of honey. You'll be fine. <laughs> but it helps. It, like, it legitimately does help. I guess it does. Um, and we'll talk more about honey in a, in a little bit, actually. Uh, but because of all of these developments, bugs and insects are used much less today than they have been used in history. The results are just too varied and too unpredictable to actually do anything with. Not all bugs are the same, and if you want to standardize medicine, as a lot of people wanted to do around the time, looking at chemistry over insects makes a lot of sense. So that's why I don't have a ton of information about insects being used much from around this time up until the 1950s, when the blood of the horseshoe crab was discovered to have been very sensitive to endotoxins and has been used to test for bacterial contamination in medical equipment and vaccines ever since. Oversimplifying this issue majorly, they detect endotoxins by clotting up in the presence of them and by taking their blood and standardizing a test called a limulus amoebocyte lysate that you can test basically all medical equipment or medicine for contamination. And I mentioned the horseshoe crab because it is an arthropod, and just because it is in the water, and just because it is very big, doesn't make it any less of a bug. And I also wanted to shine some light on horseshoe crabs, because they could merit their whole own episode, honestly. Um, but I wanted to shout them out here, because they're so good to us. Are you a fan of the horseshoe crab? I'm a big... <laughs> They're just little guys. You love crabs. They're just little I dudes. Don't, I don't know what it is about you and crabs, but every time you see a crab, you, you go a little bit bananas for it. It's just a little guy. Just a little guy in the shell. But it, there are so many videos online of like horseshoe crabs, like walking around on beaches. They're so cute. They're so cute. They look ancient too. They look like prehistoric. And they are. They, 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 they haven't basically needed to change much in their evolutionary makeup. <laughs> since before the dinosaurs. I, they I are like Cambrian explosion, done. <laughs> we are fully evolved, the perfect creature. I love the Best meme. crab. I love the meme where it goes like, that goes like, um, you may not like it, but this is what peak evolution looks like. <laughs> crab. And it's just the crab, like that's the perfect specimen. But that's the thing, the, the, fun, the weird thing though, the horseshoe crab doesn't even look like a crab. It doesn't? It, it looks like a, like a pill bug underneath the water. Kind of. It, uh, like a roly-poly, or? Yeah. Huh. Kind of. Oh. A, a malformed pill bug. Uh, it's a little Mixed with up. a Pokemon. Uh, it's, I get it's it. so cute. And there are, there are so many videos of them also being milked. Because you, you take some of their blood, right? Their blood is the thing that does it. But you also don't want to kill them. So you, you 
as as lab techs, you capture them, you drain them 30% of their blood, and then you release them back into the wild. And they're a little fucked up, I guess, but they're fine. Um, and there are so many Ooh, videos on woozy. the <laughs> woozy, just like Ugh. Uh, saved hundreds hundreds of lives that one crab. But and they're like, Ugh, I don't know, I'm a crab. <laughs> Uh, but there's so many videos online of like lab techs draining them to the music of uh, of Sauron making the Urukai from Lord of the Rings. I know Sauron. Because they're, 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 they're moving so many things, they're moving plants, and there's just like the sounds of hammers bashing. The, the crabs are like being drained of their blue blood. Why do they not like grow them? Why do they... Do they take them from the wild and then milk them and then release them back in? Why don't they like culture them? I think you you can encourage their growth. I don't think that they can be farmed the same way. Can't be tamed. Can't be tamed. Untamed. Free stallion of the sea. Yeah. I'm going to talk later about uh, milking spiders. Oh, fun. So, there's so uh, many animals there's getting so, milked. There's so many animals getting milked in labs. Apparently. Apparently. <laughs> um, but this is actually uh, this actually brings up a, a slight medical uh, ethical question mm-hmm. because a lot is of is it ethical to milk the crab? It, sometimes it's not because I mean they're animals, right? Like yeah. they're, they're beasts, and uh, a lot of the companies that that extract this blue blood, they're supposed to by law to only drain thirty percent and then release them back into the sea for like sustainable populations and ecosystems and all that bullshit. Um, what's another 10%? What's another 10%? What's another 20? In fact, what's another 70? Because some people just drain all of them and then send the dead crabs over Aww. to uh, like food, uh, fish food refineries and just grind them down into like a powder, which you really are not allowed to do. Like they are not the correct type of fish to do that with. You are, they are supposed to go back into the sea. But some companies are a little weird. So the um, are they endangered or no, no? They're not endangered, but like you, you know, you can't use them up like that. That's mm. just unethical, and it's also cruel to the animal. But the FDA actually has has a special task force that um, that is looking for horseshoe abuse, horseshoe crab abuse. <laughs> the crab knights. The crab knights. They ride the they ride like the big horseshoe crabs into battle mm-hmm. against. Uh, bad fishermen into the biomedical know. institute into the biomedical institute this is all, this analogy is already falling apart um but there is a correct and safe way to take care of them mm-hmm. like if it's all handled correctly which most of them are you can harvest as much blood as you want basically and have a healthy population and the crabs are fine mm-hmm. and it's really good because like uh it's good to maintain a big healthy stock of them too because during the very recent covid19 pandemic and we had to mass produce like a ton of vaccines on very short notice. Every single one of those vaccines needs to be tested for a endotoxin infection because you don't want bacterial infection in your vaccines because then people die. So that's a lot of blue blood that has to be used up in order to check all of those vaccines. Thank you, horseshoe crab, yes. for solving the COVID crisis. Yes, <laughs> legitimately one of the major actors in helping solving in helping solving it. But there are also other bug applications coming up in the in the very near his, in very near history in the 1980s researchers began studying the potential of insects to produce antimicrobial peptides which are small proteins that can kill bacteria viruses and fungi antimicrobial peptides have been isolated from a variety of insect species including beetles bees and flies and have shown promise as potential antibiotics 
In fact, some insect-derived antimicrobial peptides are already being developed as treatments for infections, such as MRSA. More recently, scientists have identified potential uses for other insect-derived compounds, such as venom toxins and silk proteins. You're actually going to talk about silk proteins mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the snake. No, the, the spider. spider milking. For example, the venom of the cone snail contains compounds that can block pain signals, and it's being studied as a potential treatment for chronic pain. Similarly, the silk protein produced by spiders has been shown to have wound healing properties and is being developed as a biomaterial for medical applications, which, again, you'll talk more about later, and I'm very curious to find out how that works. And even honey is returning as a potential alternative for antibiotics in order to avoid antibiotic-resistant bacteria, with the honey even working to reduce the bad effects of other medical interventions like hydrogen peroxide. Except this honey is super powered by science, which means that the bees are bred specifically for medical use, and they prefer to use the New Zealand Leptospermum scoparium shrub for nectar, which contains methyl glyoxal, which adds an extra antibacterial layer of defense for honey's already existing properties. This type of honey is also available as another superfood, even though Unless you sterilize it for medical use and use it for like wound treatment, all you have is just very expensive honey. I looked it up, it's like really fucking expensive. But the medical kind is made by very few select institutions in order to reduce batch variability. So that's a very broad overview of the history of insects in medicine. I'm making an effort to be less Eurocentric in my segments, which I think, I think I've done a good job on. <laughs> Not to pat myself on my own back, but I think I did a decent amount of job. Uh, but now I will hand the baton over to Salem, who will go into more detail about maggots. All right, so as you've mentioned, one popular use of insects in medicine is maggot therapy. And it's the treatment of bone and soft tissue infections with live maggots, which clean the wound, disinfect it, and stimulate wound healing. Um, actually, the use of maggots as therapy came to be accidentally, with military surgeons noticing that wounded soldiers who were left on the battlefield for longer and whose wounds were infested with maggots tended to fare better. There are old descriptions of soldiers from like biblical times who mm -hmm. have, you know, they've dressed themselves in like pretty gruesome wounds and, and, the, and the dressings themselves are wriggling with like a thousand little maggots. Like, like the... The bandages themselves are like undulating from, from, the, from the maggots underneath. I hate that. I also hate this. Um, and but. so do patients. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Great. I can't imagine why. <laughs> um, so actually the name of the surgeon who is credited with having, with having come up with the maggot therapy is William Bear. So during his service in World War I, he saw how maggots seemed to help wounds heal, and he decided to test his hypothesis in the clinic while he was serving as a professor at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. After his work got published, maggots saw a surge in popularity, at least up until the 40s. And one uh, reason for that is because people complained that it was very difficult to obtain maggots, that they were expensive, and that they kept escaping the dressings. <laughs> Um, and, this <laughs> and this continues to be a problem. Stop running. <laughs> also, at the same time, you've 
mentioned this, but antibiotics became more more available and surgical techniques also became more refined. So medical professionals started gravitating away from this type of therapy and by the 50s, maggot therapy was basically not used anymore. That is until the end of the 80s when antimicrobial resistance started to become a concern and also diabetic foot ulcers started becoming more common at uh, which point medical professionals started looking back wistfully at how good maggots <laughs> treated them um, Come back to us, and their patients. I should call her. <laughs> I should call them. <laughs> the one they got away. Um, and started to reconsider their use as therapy. Can I make a joke? Yeah. I'm sorry I'm interrupting so much. Doc- doctors, um, this I'm, I'm role-playing. I should call them. Hey, it's me. I I really want you to come back. This is the worms. Oh my god. Thank you, that's my... Thank you. The way that was so unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, anyway, so in... The 80s, you know, a lot more microbial microbial resistance, diabetes starts becoming more common. So there is this like new interest in maggot therapy. Mm. And at this point, some of the initial concerns that kind of led to maggots not being used so much anymore started being addressed, like the fact that they uh, would escape dressings. Um, Keep getting away. So since then, we've made some uh, advancements in the field of maggot imprisonment and have no maggot retention and have developed special cage-like dressings that give the maggots complete access to the wound while preventing them from and i quote from a paper leave the wound unescorted (laughs) um i I did i had no idea this was such an issue i know it i was also surprised and i love that this is like a a major like research field how to how to prevent the maggots from crawling Just... away from the wound. Um, Get and locked the... in, nerd. Yeah. <laughs> Get caged. Yeah, like they just literally, they, they you know, They're they can't find them. They cage fight the wound and the, and the maggots. Mm-hmm. They can't find them. What do you mean? They, did the maggots just escape? Yeah, they escape. That's, that's another thing I'm going to get to. Just like escape the hospital? No, like they hide in the room. <laughs> <laughs> This is another no, thing. This, this is, is another not thing. Real. They can't find them. <laughs> and the worst thing is that they then um, like pupate and become flies, and then you just have like flies. Oh, that's right. That's right. The room. Of course they do. So it's just it's such a mess. But basically, um, oh, this would be awful. Imagine like you're getting maggot therapy, and you're just like, <laughs> oh my god, damn it. Yeah. So um, Con- containment is breached. So a lot of uh, a lot of improvements on uh, on maggot retainment strategies. So with diabetic foot foot ulcers, for example, maggots are placed in a nylon sock, which is glued to the wound and held in place by a piece of tape. And this kind of dressing is also convenient because it restricts the movement of the maggot, so they can't just crawl anywhere. Um, and they also are not able to like bite just anything, uh, like for example, exposed nerves, and also alleviate the doctor's discomfort or you know whoever is applying the um, the dressing mm. uh, because they don't have to see them. Yeah. And this is they do wriggle. They do they do be wriggling, and a lot of people don't want to see that. So yeah. that's a, a good strategy. 
Today, we're also able to breed specific strains of maggots. So, because they're not all equal in terms of safety and effectiveness and also disinfect them chemically so they're germ-free. So this is another way in which like maggot therapy has been improved since previous times. Mm. How do you sterilize maggot? I don't know. You give them a bath. Like... <laughs> Maybe I, like you sprayed them with ethanol. I don't really know. New career is <laughs> maggot groomer. Maggot groomer. <laughs> I'm the maggot bather. I give them baths. Can't they also do like an infrared like light scan? Yeah. Or something. Maybe or, or like with, no, they could also do UV. This is how we disinfect um, like cell culture yeah. hoods. I guess if you don't need them to be alive for a very long time, like UV treatment could also work. Mm. Um, and they, of course, would get cancer later, but I guess at that point, <laughs> you don't care that much about the maggots themselves, um, as long as they eat. Yeah, eat up. as long as they eat up. So if you're curious, the most commonly used species include Lucilia sericata, which is the green bottle fly, and that's like the fly that you mostly see in the summer. Um, oh, awful. Yeah, I know. And also Protoformia terranovae. Which is the Northern Blowfly, also a really like non-fancy species, which I was a bit surprised by. I thought it was like you know some like cool, like a cool, cool exotic, exotic fly. maggot type, it's but it's just like a fly. Um, as far as cost goes, maggot therapy was like five dollars in nineteen thirty-three, and is between eighty to hundred dollars today, which is about the same price when you adjust for inflation. Oh. But when you consider the hike in price for um, other medical and surgical treatments, maggot therapy is actually pretty cheap. So it's a pretty like available type of therapy. Cool. In terms of efficacy, when compared to other types of wound treatment, most studies I've seen indicate that maggot therapy is really effective in terms of preventing infection and improving wound healing, which is explained by an increase in oxygen perfusion, immune cell recruitment, and formation of new tissue. Um, and a lot of the the stuff that I talked about, especially when it comes to like different um, strategies for maggot containment <laughs> um, I got from a very specific paper and the author left a really funny acknowledgement <laughs> section that I wanted okay. to read. It's like totally not related, but I thought it was really funny okay. and I wanted to read it. Um, Dr. Sherman acknowledges his wife, Julie, and his daughters, Rebecca and Hannah Lee Sherman, who over the past 12 years graciously allowed so much family time and material support to be redirected to the cause of maggot therapy. Without their sacrifices, Dr. Sherman would have had to abandon this work and get a real job many years ago. I love it when scientists have a sense of humor. <laughs> I do love that, though. Uh, it, it reminds me of, a, of, a, of an acknowledgement in a, in a math paper. Mm -hmm. If I could if I share, it's just completely off the cover of, this, of the scope of this podcast, where someone cited Theodore, uh, a certain Theodore Kaczynski, who has done important work in, in the field of mathematics. Um, Turned but, out to be but, the cat. But in, but in the acknowledgement <laughs> section, best known for other work. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's fun. I, scientists are, are fun sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. All right, so we've talked about maggots, and that's one worm. Um, but it's not the only worm. I have another worm for you. Um, and that is helminths. So the term of helminth is actually really broad, and it includes flukes, tapeworms, roundworms, and thorny-headed worms, which sounds horrible yes. and is horrible, yes. um, but thankfully it rarely infects humans. 
which I'm very grateful for. I looked at some pictures and they were oh. awful. Um, actually, for this episode, for this particular episode, I looked at a, at a lot of pictures <laughs> that I, I that you regret. That I regret. I wish I didn't see them. I, I've, been, I've been so brave. I'm deathly afraid of the concept of tapeworms. I'm like, you're not gonna like the Spartans. Oh, <laughs> um, intentionally infecting a human with a tapeworm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh yeah. Sure. Go. Okay. Uh, okay. I'd rather have the disease, whatever it is. I don't even know what the disease is. I'd rather have that. So, as per your reaction, helminth infections are typically something that you do not want to have. Um, they cause all sorts of symptoms depending on the type of helminth, what organ is infected, and so on. Um, most commonly, you know, you you when you think about like parasites, you think about intestinal parasites, um, and those are not like that bad. Like they can be worse. Uh, mostly, yeah. they cause malnourishment and anemia. Because mm-hmm. they, they love to just station themselves up in there and eat all your nutrients. Take all that iron. But if they are not treated properly, can cause other more serious conditions. So if they grow really big, tapeworms can physically block the intestine. They can also <sighs> migrate through the body. Immune cells clumping around blood flukes may block blood flow through the liver. And tapeworm larvae can grow in large fluid-filled cysts in the liver, brain, lungs, or just body cavity and cause pressure atrophy. Yeah. As, as every good fan of House MD knows. So, considering all this, why would anyone want to purposefully infect themselves with such a thing? Mm-hmm. Let's first think about what happens when a person becomes infected with a helminth, like a tapeworm or a roundworm. So... One interesting thing about this kind of worm is that they're not interested in killing the host. And their survival strategy is keeping, actually keeping the host alive for as long as possible to mm-hmm. ensure their own survival and transmission to further hosts. So Makes sense. they are interested in remaining in the system for as long as possible, which implies not being attacked by the host's immune system. So the strategy by which they do that is immunosuppression of both the innate and the adaptive immune system, basically forcing the organism, meaning the human, to switch from an acute immune response to a milder one. So the person still has an immune response, but it's just like mild enough to where the worm can manage it. Okay. And a secondary effect to that is that it can lead to a lowered state of inflammation in the whole body, which lowers the risk of autoimmune disorders. This is supported by a number of epidemiological studies conducted in geographical areas with high parasitic infection propensity, which have shown a correlation between past helminthic infections and a lower risk of developing allergies and autoimmune disorders like asthma, IBS, colitis, atherosclerosis, among others. This is why helminths and their products are being considered now as potential therapeutics for treating inflammatory disorders in humans. Um, and there, there's gonna, I'm gonna name a few clinical trials. Um, so one of them used eggs from porcine whipworm species, Trichuris suis, to investigate the safety of this kind of therapy. Because that's the first thing you wanna look at. Like, is this therapy safe? Or yeah. am I gonna like kill the patient by infecting them with parasites? Yeah. During the trial, seven patients with IBD, they were given one dose of live helminthic eggs. And the trial found that all patients improved clinically without any adverse effects, though three patients relapsed 12 weeks after getting the one dose. Therefore, one of the conclusions of the trial was that multiple doses may be required. Um, Sure. Hope you like gobbling up (laughs) parasite eggs. Parasitic eggs. 
There was a follow-up trial. I actually feel kind of sick. <laughs> there was a follow-up trial and that exposed 54 patients to eggs from the same species, but this time the patients were given four doses over the course of 12 weeks, and it was found that the patient's clinical presentation improved. However, this trial used pig hookworm eggs, for which humans are not a natural host. Um, so maybe this is one of the reasons why multiple doses were needed, because if humans were a host, then maybe the parasite would like actually establish them itself mm -hmm. in the body and you wouldn't need to like keep giving eggs mm. but but there you know the, this this kind of this trial uh, showed promising clinical benefit another trial using eggs from the same species had 79 percent of patients with crohn's disease respond to the therapy and 72 percent of patients entering remission after 24 weeks of therapy with no major adverse effects Damn. yeah it's like That's really good quite really good numbers i was really quite a for Crohn's, that's amazing. Right? Um, and in a number of trials, pig whipworm eggs were administered to patients with multiple sclerosis. Though the set of trials showed less promising results with patients getting limited clinical benefits. So I guess it really, really depends on the disorder. Yeah. Um, even though they're all autoimmune disorders. Yeah. Um, but, Unfortunate. Yeah. But as you can see, there does seem to be some promise in the helminthic therapy area for the treatment of autoimmune diseases. But a major limitation is the ick factor because people, uh, turns out, don't want to drink drinks with parasite eggs in them. And there's also like, it's just the thought of like purposefully inducing like a parasitic infection and just having parasites that people really don't like. Um, so this causes limited trial participation. Like people don't even want to sign up for the clinical trial, yeah. which makes it really difficult Understandable to, for sure. to like know whether this is doable. Yeah. And it also creates a concern that even if this was, you know, shown to be a viable treatment strategy, like patients are just not going to stick to the regimen. Mm. So that's also a concern. It, oh. You're so over like, this. We're not evolved to have... Like, I know it could be good for us, right? Yeah. But we're, we're evolved specifically to have the ick factor against mm -hmm. being infested with parasites. Yeah, it's not ideal. Like, the, even, oh, even the word infested. Like, because that's the word you use for, for parasites. Do you want to be festering? With... Uh. <laughs> but you'll be happy to hear that... Um, because a lot of people agree agree with you. Yes. So a future direction for helminthic therapy is the development of drugs using helminthic peptides and immunomodulatory proteins mm. instead. So instead of giving people like eggs, live eggs of parasites, they you know scientists are just looking into extracting those active compounds and making them into drugs. Yeah. Um, Which yeah. Because in addition to being less gross, isolating the active compounds may also be beneficial because the dose and the type of active compound would be more controllable. Mm. And this goes into a secondary but not less important limitation of helminthic therapy, which is the risk of developing hypoactive immunity. So we've mentioned this previously, but maintaining balance in the body is very important. And the immune system is a great example of something that you don't want to have too much or too little of. So while helminthic therapy can help with autoimmune disorders, impairing the immune system may increase susceptibility to bacterial and viral infections and other pathologies that the immune system would take care of. Yeah. So you also need to be really careful with, with you know, considering yeah. this um, aspect. Because it makes you basically immunocompromised. 
I wouldn't like, kind of, like, kind yeah, of, I like wouldn't say immunocompromised, but it does increase your risk. Yeah. Um, so it's something to be careful about. Hmm. So the last thing that I want to talk about in this section is the use of spider silk in the field of tissue engineering. And I know that you hate spiders. I do. You I are... am deathly arachnophobic. <laughs> I know this, but I hope that you will that you will be able to appreciate just how amazing spider hmm. silk is, and just how varied, how like what interesting uses spiders get mm. out of spider silk. I do want to clarify something. I, I am definitely afraid of spiders, right? Like, I hate spiders. Don't want to see them. Don't want to have them near me. Go, 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 go. I hate them. However, when I'm outside, like, the home, I kind of have to live with that fear a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, I accept the fear. Like, because yeah. I'm in their house mm-hmm. at that point. But if they're in my house, I will flip my shit <laughs> just as much I would if, like, a squirrel got inside the house. You know what? Because that's my house. Yeah. They don't belong in here. And they are wonderful creatures created by God in God's image, but like I do not. <laughs> are they created in God's image? A spiders are made in God's image. I understand that. So, first of all, did you know that spiders can vary the stickiness and thickness of their silk depending on what they want to use it for? I, I've heard that, right? Because yeah. they, they have, when they make like their webs, Mm-hmm. Like, some of them are for stickiness, and some of them are for them to walk on. Yeah. So, some of them are sticky, some of them are not. And you, you yeah. can't tell the difference, but, like, they can. So, they, so they, so <laughs> they, they don't get stuck on their own web. Yeah. Um, they, I mean, so they use silk for a variety of, of purposes. So, they can use it to make the web, obviously. Mm. They can use it to make cocoons in order to wrap up their prey oh, or yeah. to wrap up their eggs for protection. They can use it to trap pheromones and make pheromone trails. To amplify courtship vibratory signals. So, you know, if there's a spider on one end of the web and there's another one on the other side and the other one can, like, do a little dance and then the first spider, like, feels it from the web. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Feel, Feeling the good vibes. <laughs> um, so they can do that. They Some spiders can even use their silk to travel via air currents and electric fields. They release silk threads in the air and just catch the wind and then ride it to wherever the wind goes. Yep. Um, I know you hate that. I, I absolutely hate that because they can get, they get up high in the sky. Like they don't just hang around like, and like your level there, but the birds, <laughs> like they're up above the birds, but they're fucking parrot. Like they, they fly. Spiders are not supposed to fly. They are supposed to fly. That's why they do. They gave them eight legs to be eight times more on the ground than we are. Yeah, and they gave them also silk so they can fly. Do you know which ones love to, to fly? Do you know what like the main purpose for that is? <sighs> Why? It's really interesting. It's the babies, the spiderlings. That's how that's how they le- leave the home. Oh. That's how they like scatter. They're like going off to college. <laughs> There's even one species of spider which spends its entire life underwater. It straight up lives underwater, mm-hmm. but what it does is it uses silk fibers to make a mesh and trap air, bubble, uh, air bubbles under the mesh. Mm-hmm. And so it lives underwater, but then occasionally also swims and just like drinks a little bit of, like takes a breath of air mm-hmm. and then just goes back to live underwater. I don't really know why it lives underwater. Maybe like it's a to pr- protect itself from predators or something. But like, how how fucking cool is that? That's and that is really cool. I do find the spiders to be a very varied and interesting part of God's world. Um, yes, 
I have seen pictures. I have seen pictures of like the snake underwater, yeah. and like it's just like they're not supposed to be there. Like why? Where are they supposed the, to be though? The same creature, the same type of creature, is not supposed to both be way underwater and also way up in the sky, traveling on electric on electric fields. Spiders will take over the world. No, it's the horseshoe crab that's gonna take over the world. They will save us from the spiders. <laughs> At the end of time. The horseshoe crabs will take on the spiders, and we are just caught in the crossfire. I think spiders are nice. Um, okay, so let me let me get back to um, to the silk. So one of the reasons that spider silk can be used in so many different ways is that it has a, a number of unique chemical and mechanical properties, and it also really varies from spider species uh, to spider species. And because this is a medical history podcast, I'll focus on spider silks applications in medicine and medical science, but it has uses beyond that. Like it's been used as a textile to build bulletproof vests, as a 3D printing ink, and as an anti-rust coating for ship panels. And those are only the applications that I use, uh, that I know about, but I'm sure there is, yeah, (laughs) I use it myself. Um, I actually have like like a workshop in the back where I make bulletproof vests mm-hmm. from spider silk like ship panels yeah um yeah it's my you know it's just a little mm. side gig in the secret second story of our apartment <laughs> anyway those are just the applications that i know about but like there's just so many so in the context of medicine it is considered an attractive material due to its durability and strength but also because it's biodegradable and has low immunogenicity so it um, triggers the immune system very little. Its properties have been known for some time too. Ancient Greeks and Romans, for example, used to cover battle wounds in spider silk poultices, which were known to speed up healing. Now, there's quite a bit of interest in the use of spider silk as suture threads, especially as a treatment of tendon ruptures. And one application of spider silk that I think I think is really cool because I'm very interested in regenerative medicine is it's used as a matrix for skin repair in plastic reconstructive surgery. In one study in 2011, a group of scientists were able to weave a spider silk web on a steel frame and culture fibroblasts and keratinocytes, which are skin cells, um, to form a dermis and epidermis layer. And the silk helped the cells adhere and also guided their growth. Spider silk was also used to promote regeneration of peripheral nerves by guiding axonal extension, as well as regeneration of heart muscle by similar strategy. So a major thing that they do is guide cells to where they're supposed to be. They're like little uh, track lines. Fun. Track track rails? Tracks? Tracks. (laughs) And a major reason spider silk is useful in these ways is due to the fact that it doesn't elicit a severe immune response, and also because it's biodegradable, um, and the biodegradability is coupled with the production of freshly developed tissue. Currently, the uses of spider silk in medicine are still in the research phase, and one major limitation is scalability. So unlike silkworms, it's very difficult to actually produce spider silk in large quantities. Spiders require a lot of space to weave their webs. Um, They're kind of diva about that. And they also... They also tend to eat each other if you put too many in the same space. Like yes. they, they really like their, their personal... Too many. Too. <laughs> <laughs> they really like their personal space. 
Um, I have heard that one of the first uh, like practical experiments, experiments with cloning and genetic engineering has been to inject spider genes into goats so that goat milk yeah. has... So that the gold like milk the protein. Ha- has the, yeah has a protein like it doesn't have spider silk in it but it has the protein mm. from mm-hmm. spider silk and then you can mm-hmm. using weird science that I don't understand you can separate goat milk from spider silk mm-hmm. uh, and you get both yogurt and feta cheese and also nice wound dressing the perfect yeah. goat the perfect goat um, all you want from a goat I've definitely heard about that it's not something that I'm really familiar with but let me let me get to i'll talk about something similar oh but okay so going back to actually like the 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 production of the um, uh, of the silk using live spiders it's really hard to to have like a bunch of spiders in the same room like producing mass quantities of silk like i said they they eat each other they need a lot of space and if you just have like individual spiders they just don't produce enough but just for fun <laughs> there are some illustrations online of contraptions uh, that people use to extract silk from live spiders okay um and i watched the video that spider I, I watched the video of it basically you sedate the spider with carbon dioxide <laughs> and you lay it on its back and then gently pull the thread the silk thread from its butt using a rotor so you just like kind of like rotate it Uh and the the silk kind of it spools it spools it spools out and (laughs) that's fine but then a person has to be there and just like you know do the do thing like watch the spider getting milked i don't really know can you i don't know if you can do it like automatically but basically, where's the fun in that basically what i'm trying to say is you still need to do it one spider at a time Mm. and that's just not like scalable scalable yeah. um, but if you do it automatically you can't call yourself a spider milker which is i assume why most people get into this field <laughs> i mean you lose your whole job that's your job job title exactly spider milker exactly so if you you you're gonna automate yourself out of our job <laughs> they take our germs <laughs> see this is why the luddites were right the what the, the luddites, luddites. Yeah. Mm-hmm. milk um, your own spider another strategy that you've kind of mentioned is the is it's it's called recombinant gene technology so basically you take a gene that codes for a protein of interest and you insert it into a genome of like usually cells like often it's yeast or it's uh you know mammalian cells or insect cells or bacteria and then that cell will make the protein that you want so you're basically just invading their genome and putting them to work um but one problem with that is that the silk's properties are also determined by the weaving process. So you get the protein, but then what do you do with that? Yeah. We don't fully understand the weaving process, so that's not really an optimal solution either. So in some, what we have and what we know is that spider silk performs well in vitro, meaning in you know small-scale cellular experiments, um, and in vivo on a small scale, so, you know, like small animals. But its translation into clinical settings would require spider silk production on a larger scale, which comes with its own challenges. So while promising, spider silk applications in medicine and biomedicine are still being investigated. But, you know, we, we hope for the best. Seems like an interesting uh, topic to come back to in like 20, 20, years. 20 years or something, <laughs> when like someone's figured out how to like scale up spider silk production production because mm-hmm. i feel that could probably change a lot because as you said like 
uh, spider silk is, is useful not only in medical technologies but also like in so many other things mm-hmm. just because it's so versatile yeah exactly um yeah if you so if you, if you want the noble to... price that's on <laughs> go go there it would be a cool like biotech project yeah all right leeches that's that's another interesting worm we've actually already done an episode where we talk about like leech uses mm-hmm. in medicine quite extensively so i'm not going to talk too much about it but they, but basically it's it's quite useful in um also like tissue uh reconstruction in like plastic surgery especially um, but if you want to hear more about that go to our episode about regenerative medicine uh, and then uh, and a do that i want to make here um it's always hard to know what to do for patreon rewards <laughs> and oh no <laughs> Not this. I know what this is. And we were watching, what was the show called? Total Forgiveness. Total Forgiveness on Dropout. On Dropout yesterday. And somebody gets leech therapy for $50. Um, or was it $500? $500. What if we do leech, you do. leech therapy <laughs> Leech therapy when we reach a certain point <laughs> on Patreon? Um, and we film it. Yeah, support us on Patreon. Like if and if you if it's high enough, I'll also get leech therapy. And which point I will scream, but it'll be fun. I think it'd be fun. I would get love to try actual it. Actual leeches on our bodies. I would love to try it. They make it so that the blood doesn't clot, so you keep bleeding for a while. Yeah. <laughs> which was surprising when we saw it in the yeah, trial. Yeah, I, I of course like that's the whole point, right? It yeah. increases blood circulation, but at the same time, like Jesus Christ. Yeah. You Grant sitting in there the show looking... looked like he had been through war. What's that movie? Um, American Psycho. He looked like he was uh, yeah. the guy from American Psycho. Anyway, let's talk about risks and then we wrap this up. So with any medical therapies, there are always risks. Uh, when it comes to maggots, most risks involve them escaping, arriving to the clinic dead or causing discomfort. If not rounded up, the maggots pupate and become flies, which is not really a serious adverse effect, but then you just have a bunch of flies in the hospital room, which is just annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, they are also very perishable. <laughs> and the thing with them is that they have to be shipped out hungry so that they're ready to like munch on some necrotic wound yeah. tissue. So if there's any delays in shipping, they arrive to the clinic dead. Mm. Unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Lastly, patients sometimes re- report discomfort, like um, like it, it's like it being unpleasant. Um, but this can be treated with analgesics, and also the maggots can just be removed. Like if you hate it mm. that much. Surprisingly, the yuck factor isn't very strong in patients, but it's usually like the therapists themselves or the doctors themselves that don't really like to handle uh, the maggots. But I can then, imagine. but then you know, you just put them in a sock, slap them on the wound. You don't even have to see them. It's all good. And then helminths are somewhat similar. A major limitation right now is that people get really grossed out. Mm -hmm. But then hopefully with time, you know, when we figure out what active compounds are actually at play, we can make them into drugs. Mm -hmm. And then spider silk is a bit more palatable, probably because no live spiders are actually involved. (laughs) Um, But it still carries some concerns about its safety profile, uh, specifically its immunogenicity. Like even though... Technically, like we we think it has quite low immunogenicity. You know, there's still a risk when you put something foreign in your body. So there's still some safety concerns to be um, investigated. Makes sense. But yeah, I love bugs. I think bugs are so cool. And I love that bugs help us with medicine. Yes. Thank a bug today. (laughs) Go outside, pick up a rock. Thanks to bugs underneath. 
So that's our creepy crawly episodes on how bugs help us. Just another reason to stop and be thankful for our wonderful friends, the bugs. Doesn't mean I'm letting them inside the house. Absolutely no, I, not. I am not like, letting them inside. No, no. I love bugs. Outside. Outside, though. <laughs> but outside, I was... Out of sight, out of mind. Love them. Hate them. <laughs> I uh, I will say I never kill them. Like when they're in the house, they they go outside like on a on a piece of paper. Yeah, I, do you know? Do you know? I try to do that unless they're spiders, in, in which case they are dead on arrival. Because <laughs> I can't I can't I handle t- them. I take them out. You do, and I much appreciate it. <laughs> What's that? Um, I think it comes from a poem. I keep seeing it on TikTok. Like before you kill a bug, think about how their only crime is being small or something like that. Aww. Yeah, it's really cute. I always think about that when I see a bug. Yeah. They don't do nothing wrong. They do they're nothing small. wrong. <laughs> they're just hanging out. They're a, they're a little gross, but it's not their fault. It's not their fault. All right. All right. <laughs> if you liked our episode, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, follow us on social media. Hit the follow button to keep up to date with new episodes. And we will see you next time. Bug bye. <laughs>